Welcome to episode seven of I Hear Design. Today we are here with Lisa Conway, the VP of Sustainability for the Americas uh, for Interface. And thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, of course. Thanks so much for having me. So one thing that I was interested about that, you know, something that we're hearing about a lot, but I want to really kind of dive into it a little bit more is, um, so Interface has a sustainability initiative. Will you explain a little bit more about what that is and kind of what uh, has occurred in the last few years? Sure. Um, Well, you kind of have to start kind of where we started as far as sustainability goes, which was our our Mission Zero promise, which started back in 1994. And that is our promise to eliminate any negative impact we have on the environment by the year 2020. So with that goal, kind of the, the kind of ending of that goal in sight, um, what we decided to do is really take on um, the work to figure out what is our, our next mission um, beyond zero. Um, and we'll obviously carry mission zero forward. But um, what we set our sights on is what the world needs now, and that is uh, climate take back which is literally our promise to run our business in a way that reverses global warming. So, mm-hmm. you know, kind of a big deal. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, 1994 seems so early to kind of have that vision. Um, is there, was there anything that, that spawned that idea or, uh, you know, how did that end up becoming such a focal point of the company? Yeah, so so back just prior to 1994, um, and I guess a, a few years prior, really, um, our customers started asking us what we're doing for the environment. And our only answer at the time was that we weren't breaking any laws, which is mm-hmm. not really the most bold environmental vision, <laughs> as, you, as you can imagine. Um, <laughs> And, and a book landed on our, our founder, Ray Anderson's desk, called The Ecology of Commerce by Paul Hawken. Mm. And that's when he had his now famous um, spear in the chest moment where he convicted himself a plunderer. Um, so many of the interior finishes out there um, and in the world in general are, are made of plastic, which is, which is oil derived. Mm-hmm. So he thought that he was really a very fierce competitor, and he figured that if anyone was going to do it, that um, we would be probably the most unlikely to do it, to go on mm-hmm. Mission Zero, and that if we could, that we could really change industry and inspire other businesses to to do the same. And I think he's been very successful in that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One thing that is so fascinating to me is that while the design industry as a whole, I I absolutely love the fact that the design industry as a whole is so interested in uh, in global warming and sustainability and all of these aspects. You know, it's even if the um, country pulled out of the Paris Agreement, you know, you had all these design companies coming forward and saying, "We're, you know, well, we're not." And um, one thing that I really find uh, so important is that since people spend 93% of their time indoors, the design industry, the interior design industry, what they decide is really going to impact everyone. Because even if, you know, somebody doesn't want to care about sustainability, if all of their carpet options are sustainable, you know, the, I don't too bad, you know, like, like, yeah, there yeah. is that every place is still going to be sustainable if the design industry chooses it. And we're really seeing that with uh, the carpet manufacturing. I feel like a lot of 
a lot of carpet companies are becoming more interested in a way that some of the other uh, types of design may not have jumped onto yet. Yeah, and I think that it's really a testament to to Ray's vision back in 94, because uh, we'll go out and a lot of customers say, well, every, everybody's sustainable now. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's in large part because um, our industry has has been on this journey for so long. Mm-hmm. Um, but obviously, there are some some differences, certainly between different products, different manufacturers, etc. But I think, by and large, um, one of one of the realizations that that um, people don't always make the connection between is um, the concept of reversing global warming and what what power they actually have in their specifications. So. Mm-hmm. Carbon footprint, as an example, is is not something that's readily available um, to designers. It certainly lives within environmental product declarations, but it's not in most of the labels that they they tend to look at. So, um, but there's there is so much power and so much opportunity when we look at how much carbon is in the supply chain and how much we can reduce that through specifications. Mm-hmm. Well, that's great, and. Um... You know, another term that is coming up a lot is hand printing. Uh, You know, people know a little bit more about footprinting, but what is the difference between saying that a company is involved in hand printing rather than footprinting? Sure. So, um, so hand printing, first of all, is is defined as the positive social and environmental actions either someone or a business can take to aid in achieving net positive. So what we typically, one of the kind of, um, I guess, cliches that we hear of is, is to do good, not just less bad. Mm-hmm. Um, this is kind of the same thing. So instead of just reducing your footprint, whether environmental health or otherwise, look at ways to actually have a positive impact instead of less bad. So we think about that a lot in terms of in terms of carbon, because we have such a such an opportunity um, to actually take if you if you think about global warming and and why it's why it's an issue, we've really just taken carbon from the earth and burned it as fossil fuels, and now it's in the air. Mm-hmm. So to not get too depressed over what could happen, just thinking about carbon being in the wrong place mm-hmm. um, is much more leads to much more innovative thinking about how can we now draw that carbon back down out of the atmosphere and turn Mm -hmm. it into, um, into durable products and, um, make, for example, bioplastics out of the carbon that we take out of the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. So, um, through our proof positive tile, which is kind of our concept car of carpet tile, Mm -hmm. that's all about making a, a positive product, which has a technically negative footprint, um, and actually it's makes more sense for us to have made the product than not to have made it, which is something that we're not typically used to thinking about, you know, but it's much more exciting than just reduction. Mm-hmm. Well, how does that work? You know, will you explain bioplastics a little bit more? Cause that's something I don't know anything about. Sure. Um, we've, we've heard about bioplastics for a long time now, but they're just not as ubiquitous. Most people, we should really actually start calling plastics either um, oil-based plastics or bioplastics um, because those are kind of the options. So we want to move away from oil-based products unless it's, unless it's something that, 
that has been recycled. So a post-consumer oil-based plastic would be fine because we're not extracting new materials. Mm-hmm. But, um, but a bioplastic, basically, if we kind of go back to seventh grade science class, is all about uh, taking one of the ways is about um, plants processing or absorbing carbon dioxide through photosynthesis. So they basically take carbon out of the atmosphere and absorb it as, as part of photosynthesis. And then that plant can be turned into a bioplastic and mixed with mineral fillers instead of using oil. So it's really just a, a, a raw material mm-hmm. um, or, or nutrient uh, ingredient. Mm-hmm. And that is turned into uh, that can be turned into nylon or you know other types of plastics. You can do a lot of things with it. And and carbon is really the the uh, consistent ingredient, whether it's coming from oil or coming from the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. So it's really just making a plastic in a different way. Okay, great. And you brought up a post consumer. Could you explain a little bit about? the difference between pre-consumer recycling, post-consumer recycling, and kind of what people need to know about those two differences? Sure. Um, Pre-consumer recycled content would be um, potentially uh, purchasing waste from another industry before they've used their waste or before they've sold their product to someone. So it's, it's yeah. typically waste through the industrial process, whether it's your own process or you're purchasing it from another type of manufacturing process. That hasn't made it to out into the, into the world and mm-hmm. therefore isn't post-consumer. Post-consumer is really after someone has used the product, returning it back into a, a technical loop or the circular economy in order to uh, turn it into new products. So we put a very, very, very high value on on getting our products back and actually turning them back into themselves because that is the highest and best use for a product. Um, taking it back just to avoid landfill is kind of, it's not really that impressive anymore um, to just turn something waste to energy. Um, so we we support and we've actually supported through some some political activism in California getting our products back and supporting legislation that promotes the circular economy and and gets money to recyclers so that they can make this an economically viable opportunity instead of um, purchasing the often less expensive virgin oil to make new products. Mm-hmm. So definitely want to, to get our products back and make products out of, out of old ones instead mm-hmm. of virgin. Yeah. You know, um, <clears throat> After my undergrad, I worked at an architecture interior design firm in San Francisco, and you know I was right out of college, and I couldn't understand why we had this huge pile of old carpet samples. You know, I was in charge <laughs> of the library, and like, so as being in charge of the library and being a, you know, a type A type of person, I always yep. like somebody caught me throwing out carpet tiles, and I got a very long lecture. <laughs> on how carpet tiles are recycled. And if this company didn't recycle them, then actually there was a designer in-house who made cat towers out of the, the carpet. Yeah, and yeah. I think that was the first time that I really kind of was, somebody sat me down and explained sustainability to me. And it was such an interesting way to learn about the process is to begin to learn about the process. Um, but like you said, like designers are really kind of expecting that now. Um, is there 
anything in particular that Interface thinks about when they realize that designers expect sustainability other than just having options that include sustainable materials and those that are not? Yeah, and I, I have to laugh at your cat comment because I, I swear if cats had money, they would be a, a huge consumer for yeah. us. <laughs> Because they love, they don't care what color it is. You know, we would have this huge aftermarket for, for our products. Um, that's funny. Um, I actually have, yes. uh, have carpet tiles in my house, and I have three cats. And uh, yeah, the the amount that they gravitate towards those tiles, which is great. Yeah, if they're gonna if they're gonna cough up a up a hairball somewhere. I want it on that tile that I can exactly. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. And if you're if your carpet manufacturer doesn't take back their samples for anyone who's listening, um, a huge, a great place to put them is actually in um, animal shelters, uh, because they can be used just for kind of padding for dogs and cats to lay on. And then of course, cats love to scratch them. So mm-hmm. oh, yeah, that's a great um, idea. Yeah, definitely. Um, so yeah, I mean, I mean, sustainability is absolutely expected. I think what's what's so hard for specifiers is navigating, navigating the the greenwashing, or even if it's mm. not greenwashing, just the multitude of labels that exist out there, all extremely well intentioned, and but often all all kind of geared towards a specific part of sustainability. Um, people often ask me, you know, what I do for a living. And when I, when I say that it's sustainability, they say they either start talking about their, um, their, how diehard they are about toxicity or, mm-hmm. um, or talking about global warming or the circular economy. And really what's, what is important, I think, is weighing, um, green chemistry, the circular economy, and also this, this emerging, it, it's not an emerging concept in general, but it's an emerging concept within um, interiors and, and with our, our building owners of, of embodied carbon. Once they realize, you know, we, we reduce as much as we humanly can operationally, but really for all of us, our largest carbon footprint is in the supply chain of the stuff that we buy or for designers, the stuff that we specify. So um, tackling that is is maybe the largest challenge, but... We find that so many of our customers have, they have recycling goals, they have um, materiality and toxicity goals, and, and they have, um, even if it's for banks, like climate risk, mm-hmm. um, not necessarily something that they're acting on within their supply chain, but certainly something that they factor in as climate risk to their business. You know, for, a, uh, for some of the large tech companies, where does our data center, center sit? And is it is it subject to some of our severe weather-related events? Or are we in a part of the country where, you know, Lyme disease is becoming ever more prevalent because of global warming's impact on creating um, a much better environment for um, vector-borne illness? Mm-hmm. Um, so there, it's, it's hard, but what we, what we have really been focusing on educating on as of very recently is weighing all three of those things at the same time. Mm-hmm. Circular economy, embodied carbon, and green chemistry, because um, very few, if any, I'm trying to think if there's one, um, there isn't one that comes to mind that weighs all three of those at the same time. Mm-hmm. They're really focused on a specific part of sustainability, which, as you know, is such a broad term. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a catch-all. It gets into diversity and inclusion. It, you know, it's so broad. So. 
um, yeah, weighing all of those, I, I think, is, is the real challenge. Mm-hmm. And um, will you go into the term greenwashing quickly and just maybe what designers should know about greenwashing? Because uh, it was something that people talked about a lot more uh, frequently, I believe, like 10, 15 years ago. But, um, you know, especially for newer designers, that's such an important thing to be aware of the fact that it even exists, you know. Yeah. And I don't, I think that it's, um, I don't want to talk about greenwashing in a way that it's, that it's ill-intentioned. I mean, everyone's trying to make a business for themselves, right? I mean, we, we all understand that we we can't exist if we, if we don't turn a profit. Um, but one of the things to realize is that part of turning a profit often doesn't include mother nature. Mm-hmm. So, um, so when you're, we always say that we kind of have this, this forks, fourth stakeholder in our business and we're a publicly traded company, but this fourth stakeholder is, is planet earth. Mm-hmm. You know, what is, what does she get out of it? And, um, I, I think that, that greenwashing should really be thought of as when you look at, at a company's sustainability strategy and what they choose to market, Try and understand why they're marketing what they're marketing. Is it the only thing that they have to market? Is it really a, a kind of comprehensive? Um, we we get recognized by GlobeScan every year from sustainability experts, which is why we put so much um, so much thought or so much really. Um, we're so glad that we're mentioned is because it's it's sustainability experts specifically asking which companies do you think do a good job of of integrating sustainability into their business strategy so not a marketing claim mm-hmm. um, when you look across all of our product portfolio everything that we offer is is carbon neutral mm-hmm. and that's every product globally it's not just you know, the products that are sold um, within a certain part of our business to a certain customer, etc. So I think looking at just kind of the higher level company commitment across all of their businesses, even if there's, you know, different types of businesses versus, you know, maybe just the specific product that you're comparing to another product. Mm-hmm. Is there re- post-consumer recycled content in all products? And if not, why? Mm-hmm. Um, when something is, I call it like the, the dash free, you know, when I was, when I was, uh, actually pregnant with my first child and I was, you know, going, doing one of those awful registry things, Mm -hmm. you're going down the, uh, down the aisles and you see this BPA free advertising. And I'm thinking to myself, well, I don't know what BPA is, but I know I don't want it. And the question should have been, well, what are they using instead of BPA? turns out that BPS is even worse. You know, so so really just being thoughtful about some of the questions and, and understanding why a specific characteristic of a product is being marketed and what's missing. Mm-hmm. And now switching gears a little bit, um, I'd love to talk more about uh, or, or introduce the idea of biomimicry and biophilia and what the difference is between the two. Yeah, so um, so biomimicry has a long history with interface. Um, we have been Janine Benyez and Biomimicry three point eight um, has been on our dream team for a very long time. And biomimicry specifically is is really about 
how we design materials or structures modeled on biological processes or features. So that's really kind of kind of mimicking nature when we look at whole um, kind of systems thinking. So one of the examples at Interface is um, factories as forests. And that's where, where we basically take a, a, either an existing factory in our case or for another company where they might be choosing to locate a, a factory and measuring the local, a, a local high performing ecosystem and saying, okay, what does this ecosystem provide? Um, what type of moisture is released back into the atmosphere? What type of carbon is uh, sequestered by this part of the ecosystem? Um, what habitat is provided to wildlife in this area? And try to, as best as you can, mimic that in the factory that you're putting in and ideally even go beyond that. So take more carbon out of the atmosphere, provide more habitat to wildlife, um, it, and to kind of like make up for some of the damage that we've done over the years. So that's, that's one, um, one example of, of biomimicry. And then biophilia has had a real surge of, of interest recently. And that's because I think it makes so much sense to designers, especially you have, you have a visual experience, whereas biomimicry is, is applying some of the nature's or, or some of nature's principles biophilia you can just feel when you go into a space and you have you have an actual connectedness to that space and a lot of that is nature derived through through designing um designing kind of with nature so we we one of the uh, funny sayings is an office plant does not a biophilic space make <laughs> So you can't you can't cheat and do it that kind of pathetically, but you know either through actual um, natural elements like a green wall is always kind of the most obvious example. Um, you could also uh, mimic a um, a kind of a walk through nature with carpet tiles or other similar types of um, of flooring and changes in flooring is is really great because it's a great experience to walk. Like you would in nature, you think of a hiking path where there's many different um, different heights and depressions, and um, some is soft, some is hard. Um, so all of that really contributes to really much better outcomes for occupants: higher productivity, higher creativity, um, better presenteeism at work. Um, so even if you even if you have great employee retention by numbers. How present are those are those building occupants, and how creative are they are they being uh, with their work? So really, really great surge, and I think because it makes so much sense to to designers and and then also the C suite. You know, we want people to be as productive and um, and engaged at work as possible. Great, and so then thinking about the future and everything that's on the horizon. Um, is there anything new that's coming out with either sustainability, hand printing, uh, biophilia and biomimicry? Um, what's on the horizon for design that designers should know about? Well, I think, I think there's, there's going to continue to be um, building certifications and um, additional studies around um, biophilic design in the workplace. So, so ideally, I think, I think people have probably attended sessions and have a basic understanding 
of biophilic design, but but really getting that penetrated more, I think, at the probably at the at the university level. Um, mm-hmm. So that so I didn't specifically learn about biophilic design when I went to design school. You know, just over well, I guess it was about fifteen years ago or so. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think more penetration of that for sure. I think that um, biomimicry is I will ideally be more and more integrated into engineering programs um, mm. and product design, um, industrial design. I think I think just increased penetration there because it's any any um, sessions that I've gone to that um, designers of any sort have experienced some of the content. It's just one of those aha moments where it's like, oh God, this makes this is so logical. You know, mm-hmm. this this makes so much sense. So I think just with the increased awareness, I think it'll it'll become um, more penetrated. And then sustainability in general, this this concept of embodied carbon is um, is really making a splash. Um, there's a lot of different kind of names for it. One of them is um, is uh, through Carbon Smart Building through the University of Washington. There's an embodied carbon network. Um, and then we and some some additional partners, um, ourselves, Gensler, um, uh, Certainteed, Skanska, Armstrong, and USG um, mm-hmm. have all gotten together um, to form a partnership called Materials Ken, and mm-hmm. that's called uh, or that stands for uh, the Materials Carbon Action Network, and that is all about. Um, all about prioritizing embodied carbon in specifications since there's such a large hole of that information being um, transparent. Uh, we have ingredient declarations out the wazoo in the mm-hmm. industry, um, but but no, no real transparency around carbon footprint. And uh, the embodied carbon of a material has everything to do with, with healthy materials um, mm-hmm. because if we don't create a climate fit for life, then uh, we're not going to be very healthy going into these these buildings that we're creating entirely based on wellness. Mm-hmm. So um, really, just kind of a, a holistic view. So I'd say that that that's kind of what's what's around the corner in the industry. Great, yeah. Um, thinking about universities, when I was at uh, Parsons for my master's program, I taught uh, global issues in design, and I never understood it because it was a required course for seniors. Um, but by that point. Honestly, a lot of them were very stubborn about what they <laughs> wanted to do um, and, and how they wanted to design. Um, but I recently was back in New York and I was meeting with the Parsons uh, Healthy Materials Lab. And they said that, you know, that was something that that they were concerned about, too. So it's actually now a freshman level course that, you know, everyone from fashion designers to architects need to learn about you know, uh, mostly about sustainability and healthy materials. Yeah. And like, that's so important um, to, to really kind of take that into consideration while you're learning how to design, because it is harder to relearn something uh, once you've kind of established how you design. Yeah. You're not supposed to be stubborn when you're still in college. (laughs) You're supposed to be stubborn like 30 years into your career. Man, is there any hope? <laughs> yeah, and I was I was actually just looking at that design lab information um, fairly extensively last night, and I don't I don't see any carbon footprint as part of that. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but maybe, maybe that's an opportunity to, to get in there. I think everyone, mm-hmm. everyone just inherently understands toxicity issues. Um, but if we don't put this time value of carbon and needing to peak emissions by 2050 and start drawdown, um, mm-hmm. then, you know, a healthy material in 2070, 70, or a non-toxic material, I should say, um, might not have quite as much meaning. So we have to balance mm-hmm. all of that, obviously. Obviously, we want healthy materials and everyone to be safe. Poisoning, poisoning your customers is a really, really bad business strategy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that's good. Freshman, yeah, freshman is is great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And now, just to just to close here, is there anything that I didn't ask about that our listeners should uh, should know about design and sustainability and what is happening out there? Um, I think, and I don't have a, a ton of time to go into each of the four pillars, but if, you know, if, if your listeners go to interface.com backslash climate take back, um, that is a, a reversing global warming framework where there's four pillars that can, can really be applied to anyone. It's, it's really not interface specific. It's meant to be adopted everywhere else. And those four pillars are uh, live zero, which is um, aiming to have uh, no negative footprint, which is something that we, we've all understood for a long time. The second is a little more provocative, which is love carbon, mm-hmm. um, because usually we're, we have these kind of negative feelings about either you know, fighting climate change or slashing carbon emissions. And uh, really, it's about let's stop seeing carbon as the enemy and start using it as a resource. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's something new for people. Um, and then the third is to um, lead the industrial re-revolution, which is really about getting off of this business as usual drug. Um, and to your point, it's really great to have very early adoptions about the, uh, about the importance of healthy materials um, instead of waiting too long. And that's, that's changing industry for sure. And uh, the last is to let nature cool. So nature, Mother Earth already does a really great job of, of regulating the climate. We've just burdened her too much mm-hmm. um, with, with excess carbon. So, um, so if we can just help her do more of what she already does naturally, then uh, we'll be in a, in a far better place in creating a climate fit for life. So I think that that was, that was the only kind of thing. And there's, there's a lot more to dig into there, but I think, I think that that should be good for covering what I wanted to today. All right. Great. Anything for you? I think this has been wonderful. I, a lot of information. Um, and I'm, (laughs) it's always great to, you know, introduce this topic to people because the more you hear about it, the more it becomes a normal thing that everybody talks about. Um, yep. And that's something that I think is interesting is especially, I get so frustrated with, um, you know, social media. I'm that annoying person who's like, you know, someone will post a, uh, an article and I'm like, well, actually, if you did research, actually, if you read more than just the headline, you know, like I'm that person. And, yes. Uh, yes. And so often when it comes to sustainability and what's happening in the environment and everything, it is a lot of, it's such a huge topic. Like there's so much involved into it. So like just posting an article and saying, this is what you need to know. It's like, no, 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 no. Everything's always changing. There's yes. all these, all this research you haven't seen. Um, so just kind of getting into like, 
hey, let's just discuss basics. Uh, It's so important because then once you kind of get that idea of the basics, you can start to then say, you know, according to all of the world scientists, and it's like, you need to have a basis before you can uh, really try to understand what's happening there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I I think that um, if if you always approach every headline with there's always more to the story, it's just kind of a general good rule of thumb, um, because there is always more to the story. And the better the better listeners we can be, um, I think the better um, that, that we can really make progress together. So if we, um, you know, if you say, okay, you don't do that, but then what do you do? Or you do do this, then what don't you do? Um, that that's just a really good, really good practice um, to get in the habit of. And, uh, and we can all make meaningful change because one of the, you know, one of the sustainable development goals is, is partnerships for the goals. None of us can do it alone. And if we're better listeners, then we're better innovators. So great. Well, thank you again. And to all our listeners, uh, I hope that you enjoyed this one. If you have any questions or comments or ideas, please let us know. Uh, We always love to have feedback. And of course, on uh, your preferred podcast device, uh, either, you know, uh, Google or iPhone or what have you, please remember to rate, review and subscribe and definitely let us know if you have any thoughts or any subjects that you'd like to talk about next. And until next time, thanks so much. Thank you.